Everybody kind of, you know, has Peter's number. We know Peter pretty well. Uh, James here is not the brother of Jesus. Uh, Jesus's brother at this point in time is it's kind of neat because you remember when, G- when Jesus was alive uh, the first time, uh, James, his brother, didn't believe in him, didn't uh, really uh, honor him in any way. But after the resurrection, James became a believer and is now a pillar in the Jerusalem church, leading the charge of the gospel, uh, imploring people to believe in his brother, which is kind of neat. But the James in this account was the brother of John, a son of Zebedee, uh, half of the infamous Sons of Thunder duo. He was also one of the original 12 apostles, and he was part of Jesus' inner circle of three along with Peter and John. So, for instance, when Jesus went to the Mount of Transfiguration, it was Peter, James, and John that were with him. And then the the last guy here is uh, King Herod, also known as Agrippa I. This, uh, not surprisingly, uh, there's a lot of King Herods. They all kind of had something in common. They were all just kind of horrible Horrible people, quite frankly. And and this Herod's no exception. Um, this would be the grandson of Herod the Great, who was the king at the time when Jesus was born and eliminated all the firstborn males in the country. Uh, the, the next Herod was the one who uh, took John the Baptist's life. And now this, this, this Herod is, is in power right now. He was the king in Judea at this time. He was appointed by Caligula, another horrible person, um, Herod was a friend to Rome and a friend to Jerusalem, to the Jewish religious leaders. And so he saw Christianity and the church in Jerusalem as a complete nuisance. It was going to create problems for him because it was either going to stir up trouble with the Romans or it was going to stir up trouble with the Jews. And he didn't want either of that. So because it was going to potentially create problems for him, uh, he took some pretty drastic actions. And so that's kind of sets the scene of where we pick things up in verse one of chapter 12. It says, about that time, Herod, the king, laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to also arrest Peter. This was during the festival of unleavened bread, uh, which is also Passover. So this, this would have been an extremely hard day for the church. Uh, two of the apostles have been seized by Herod. James is, is executed, and Peter is most likely next. Verse 4 says, And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. Uh, Bringing him out to the people, he's talking about a public execution. Uh, It doesn't say that, but that's exactly what he had in mind. Herod's approval rating skyrocketed when he killed James. So imagine, you know, how much the people are going to love it when when he does the same to Peter in front of them. But Herod would have to wait to carry out his planned execution because of Passover. It was considered offensive. It's kind of it's considered offensive to execute people during Passover. But if you wait until after, it's okay. I, I'm not trying to make fun of that, but it's kind of like anyway. Uh, the other ironic kind of thing to think about is what Passover represents. Passover represents a time when God miraculously rescues His people from the hand of a tyrannical leader. And when we look at this passage today, we're going to see that kind of a a nice little parallel going on. And God's timing is is amazing to me. Well, this text also points out that Herod appointed four squads of soldiers to guard Peter. Seems like kind of overkill, perhaps. But maybe uh, Herod knew this wasn't Peter's first rodeo. He'd already had one successful prison break under his belt. And he definitely didn't want another one. So he takes these extra measures to ensure success. Verse 5, it says, So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. 
Now, when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up saying, get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. Uh, There's something to me that is just wonderful about Peter being in a deep, peaceful sleep on this particular night. The night before his planned execution, he's just sleeping like a baby. Um, that just is, There's nothing else that can explain that except for the presence of the Holy Spirit within a person. It's a peace that passes understanding. And I remember as a, as a very new Christian, remembering the difference of when I laid my head down on the pillow. My wife now knows that this is not a time to talk. This is not a time to, you know, I'm going to fall asleep fast most nights. And I remember before I became a Christian, I would lay there and worry about everything. I would have no peace. I would just struggle. And and, and it was just restless nights. And that all changed. But this also reminds me of Jesus sleeping peacefully in the boat, right? When all the, all the, everybody's freaking out because of the storm. And he's just down there like, you know, I don't know that he snores. He probably didn't snore. I might. My wife's not here, so I can deny that at this point. My dad used to say, I stayed up a whole night once and I never snored once, so I'm sure I don't snore. Peter, just like Jesus, trusted in the Father's will and the Father's plan, so there was no need to panic. And and we live in a time when it it seems to me Christians are panicking about a lot of things. You look look at what's going on in in our country and in in politics and in in culture, and, and people are panicking. They're freaking out. And we need to learn to worship rather than worry. You can't do both. You're either worrying or you're worshiping. And at times when you start to panic, just remember who your God is. Remember what he's like and rest. I I love Charles Spurgeon. You guys know that. And once uh, he likened the sovereignty of God to a pillow that we can rest our head upon. And that's what I see happening here with Peter. For the Christian to live is Christ and to die is gain. So I can just see Peter thinking, do your worst, Herod. As <laughs> soon as I depart from this life, guess what happens? I enter into the presence of my Lord, which is my greatest prize. So verse 8, it says that the angel has to strike Peter on the side to wake him up. And then the angel says to him, dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real but thought he was seeing a vision. (laughs) That's kind of funny. And I think, of course, it didn't seem real because none of it was possible, right? One does not simply walk into a well-guarded prison, uh, you know, unnoticed, and then you've got bright lights in a dark prison cell that, you know, little conspicuous maybe, chains falling off, that's noisy. And then, you know, generally when, when you're just, you know, you have prisoners running behind angels past guards, it's not stealthy. There's nothing about that that's like subtle at all. You know, naturally, Peter thought, well, this must be a vision. Verse 10, it says, when they had passed the first and second guard, they came to an iron gate leading into the city. I'd love the picture of this, too, because it's like, well, the jig is up. The iron gate is there. What are we going to do now? And it seems to just like open like the grocery store with a little motion sensor. You know, just it opens for them on its own accord. And they went out along one street and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I'm sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. 
Praise God for that. I mean, you can, can you even imagine what Peter's, you know, experiencing? You know, one minute, you're literally chained between two guards awaiting your horrible fate. And the next minute, you're standing out in the street, you know, with, with like a, a nice evening breeze blowing on your face, thinking, what just happened? But isn't that what our God does? And he sets the hopeless and the helpless prisoners free. Those who had been sentenced to life, he awakes and leads to life. I love the, the old hymn called And Can It Be. Uh, Charles Wesley wrote it, and, and he took the one, one of the verses from that song from this account. And the interesting thing to me is that the Wesley brothers, by their own testimony, acknowledged that they were in church for quite a while before they actually became Christians. They, 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 uh, there was a point where they recognized that they really didn't know Jesus, even though they were in the church and, and writing songs and doing these. And it's and it said that this, and can it be, was the first song that he wrote after his conversion, which I even like more. It says this, and I picture Peter in the cell and, and, and Charles Wesley thinking about that and writing these words. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. But thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? That's a good one. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge, know what I mean? And can it be? Okay, I hope that that is your story this morning. I hope that when you hear those words and and that thought of of that conversion, that, that that describes you. Jesus has freed you. He's rescued you from your sin. Well, now we have Peter standing in the street trying to understand what's just occurred. And verse 12 says, when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose name was Mark. Many were gathered there together and were praying. Uh, This is a neat picture of the church, worried about Peter, gathered together in this place and praying. And, And I imagine Peter at this point really wants to get off the street because he's just escaped from prison and, and you don't really want to be outside at this point. And so this next section to me, I don't know why it's, it's comical. I, I find humor in a lot of weird things. And maybe, maybe, I don't know, this, this almost seems like a scene from a sitcom. Like you could almost insert the laugh track in a couple places here. Although laugh tracks are evil and should never be used in a sitcom, but that's a different, that's a different, different day. So yeah, thank you. I got an amen for the, yeah. <laughs> uh, verse 13, it says, and when Peter knocked on the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. And they said to her, you're out of your mind. Now, now what were they praying for? <laughs> and that's the funny part to me. It's like they're literally on their hands and they saying, Lord, we just lift Peter before you right now. We pray that you would do something miraculous here. And Rhoda comes in and says, you guys are never going to guess who's at the gate. You're nuts. You're out of your mind. It's like, Okay. But she kept insisting that it was so. And they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued to knock. I just picture him out there like, guys, Peter continued to knock. And when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. And then he departed and went to another place. So Peter decides to get safely out of town, which is probably smart at this point. Uh, And Herod, (laughs) 
is in for a, a very unpleasant surprise. Verse 18 says, now when the day, when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. I like that phrase. No little disturbance. No, there was a big disturbance. That's an understatement. These guys would have been freaking out. I mean, have you ever thought, man, I had a really bad day at work? Not like this you haven't. Uh, these guys had one job, and, and Herod is not exactly known for, for going easy on people and his cheerful disposition. Verse 19 says, And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. And then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. So Herod, for, for uh, you know, he... he, he uh, decides to, to get out of town, maybe needs a you know little vacation at this time. So he goes to Caesarea where he had to deal with more problems um, because there's, you know, I guess that's just the life of a king in those days. But it says in verse 20, now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon and they came to him with one accord and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. And on an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes took a seat upon the throne and delivered an oration to them. So you've got uh, uh, Herod going out to speak to these guys. Now there's a, there's a historian named Josephus that actually re- records this account. Uh, and it's really cool to read them side by side. If you, if you get a chance to, I would look at it. But one of the things that uh, Josephus adds to this is that this royal robe that Herod, Herod dressed himself in was, all, was made of silver. So it was this just dazzling silver, and he came out to speak to him in the morning when the sun's rays were 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 coming off of this this amazing robe. So he walks out there in full, you know, this full display to talk to the people, and that's why it caused the onlookers to cry. What we read in verse 22, and the people were shouting, "The voice of a god and not a man!" And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. I know that sounds gross, but that's how they worded it. Uh, it, It's fascinating to me that this King Herod, who had just witnessed the unmistakable power of the one true God in the rescue of Peter. I mean, could he have, could he have, you know, any less effort in, in snatching Peter right out of his midst? And rather than humbly acknowledge the one true God and his power, he instead steals the glory that belongs to God alone for himself. And God is not fond of those who steal the glory that belongs to him. Isaiah 42, 8 says, I am the Lord. That is my name. I will not share my glory with anyone else or the praise due me with idols. And as much as I like the picture of him dropping dead on the spot, I've always, I won't even tell you how I pictured this whole scenario with Herod getting struck and that, you know, I just pictured like, you know, I won't, I won't go into it. It's gross. But I thought, you know, yeah, he, he steals the glory from God and God, you know, like lightning bolt kind of thing. And, you know, Herod's kind of in a, in a, I'll stop. Uh, that's not, according to what Josephus said, uh, he was struck with this intense pain in his stomach as he was speaking to the crowd and they had to take him off. And he was actually in his quarters in agonizing pain for five days before he died. Um, and, and I often wonder to myself when I think about people like Herod, and evil leaders in the world. Why doesn't this happen like more often? I would kind of vote like, let's, let's maybe just make that a standard thing. You know, when that happens, you just kind of like, but that doesn't happen. But I am encouraged to know that God has said, I will repay. Vengeance is mine. And he knows, and there will come a day when there will be a reckoning. 
Well, this chapter ends with these incredibly inspiring words. But the word of God increased and multiplied, and Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. So that's the account of James's death, Peter's rescue, and Herod's Herod's Herald Herod's demise. Make it up names now. Uh, I see four things to, to focus on in this passage: persecution, protection, prayer, and proliferation. So the first thing we're going to look at is the enemy's persecution. Uh, the reality is that within the church, persecution happens and will continue to happen. The Apostle James lost his life because of his association with Jesus. God's people have always faced persecution, and they always will face persecution until his kingdom fully comes and is established. And even though I would rather opt out, I'm not, I don't like the whole idea of persecution. I'd be like, you know, can I... Can I get a pass from that? Uh, please, is, is kind of the way I think. If you name the name of Christ, opposition is inevitable. We've chosen the narrow road. It's the more difficult road to navigate, but it's the one that leads to life, to eternal life. So even though we don't always recognize it or realize it, we're engaged in a spiritual battle. And the more we get involved in work that has eternal significance, the more we're going to feel the fight and experience resistance. I love this quote by Brian Edwards. He says, Christianity is not about how to escape the difficulties of life, but about how to face them. And I think that that's something we need to learn because there's a lot of people out there that are teaching a false gospel. And those who teach that it is always God's will to deliver us from sickness and from tragedy and from death are false teachers. And the truth is, if we're being honest, that during times of prosperity, we tend to forget about God. But during times of suffering, he's, he's, we diligently are aware of him and seeking him. So know that the enemy's persecution will come. Next thing we see in this, in this account is God's protection. Uh, we clearly see his protection and divine deliverance upon Peter. God's ability to save is incredible. His power is immeasurable. Nothing is too hard for God. Uh, he really made Peter's rescue look like child's play. I was picturing like my, my grandson, Blake, who's, you know, he's, it's his birthday today, actually. But yeah, he would take like a, a little string and he would, you know, tie my hands up and, you know, and, you know, I got you, Papa, you know, and it would be like, you know, and I pretend like, yeah, you've really, you know, you've, I can't, what am I ever going to do? You know, it was silly. It was child's play. I mean, it was literally like, you know, nothing. But in his mind, you know, he had devised this thing that couldn't be, and that's how I feel about Herod. Herod thought, oh, I've got this, you know, and it's like, no, this is silliness to God. So we see this incredible power in God rescuing Peter, but in the same account, we see the death of James, which raises the question, why did God save Peter and not James? Why does James die and Peter live? Did he care more for Peter? No, I don't, I don't believe that's indicated here at all. And in life, we're faced with these kinds of hard questions. Why is one person healed and not the other? And we try to make sense of these things. But I want to ask you this question. Who was seated on the heavenly throne the day that Peter was rescued? Obviously, God was, right? Who was seated on the heavenly throne the day, the day that James died? And, and the answer is, obviously, God was. 
I think sometimes we're tempted to believe that, that, you know, God has a worthy adversary and that they're battling back and forth, blow for blow. And some days God wins and some days the enemy wins. And that's ridiculous. It's not true at all. And it bothers me when people think like that. And it bothers me a lot because if that's true, if God has a weakness, if he has a chink in his armor, if he has a way, like if he can have a bad day, I sure hope it's not the last day. You know what I mean? But God doesn't have bad days. He doesn't have chinks in his armor. He has no weaknesses. No one can mount an offensive against our God. You would literally have a better time trying to shoot a, four, a 747 out of the air with like a children's sling, you know, a slingshot and a little pebble. I mean, that's how ridiculous it is. The hard truth is that if James died that day at the hand of King Herod, it was because that's the day God determined James would come home. And in fact, Jesus gave James a glimpse of this day back in Mark chapter 10 and verse 39. You probably recall the story of the sons of thunder. I love these brothers. They, they come to Jesus and they say, hey, when you set up your kingdom and you're sitting on the throne, how cool would it be if I was on one side of you and John was on the other side? You know, what do you think of that, Jesus? And he answers them and says, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? or be baptized with the baptism that I'm going to be baptized with? And he's speaking about his coming death. And they say, oh yeah, we're able. We can do that. Sign us up. And, and Jesus reminds them and he says, no, you, you actually will drink that cup and you will be baptized in that way. He, he tells them that it's going to come. He knew there was going to come a point in time when they would face the same thing and drink that, that cup. So he wasn't surprised at all when the day came for James. John, his day came later, basically because John refused to die. Uh, tradition says they even tried to boil him in oil at one point, and he didn't die. So then they sent him to Patmos, you know, just to get rid of him because he, he was, you know, that's the way it was. But, but James, this wasn't a surprise to Jesus. It wasn't a win for the enemy. It was actually a win for James. Someone once said, you can't kill a Christian. You can only change his address. <laughs> I like that. The moment that King Herod killed James, he was immediately reunited with his friend and Lord, Jesus. He immediately heard the words, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your master. I mean, one could actually argue that James got a better deal than Peter here, if we're looking at it the right way. When persecution comes, and I believe it's at our doorstep, right now, you can take on the mindset of a victim or as a victor. And in Christ, we are victorious. Romans 8.37 says it this way, that we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. I take great comfort in those words. All you can do to me is change my address. God can protect us. Or he can bring us home. Either way. We're victorious. Either way, we win. And you can trust, Christian, that nothing befalls you except that which a loving God permits to happen. So the next thing we see in this passage is the church's prayer. 
Uh, prayer gets maligned a lot today. Uh, thoughts and prayers in the world's evaluation has become literally the least you can do for somebody. They actually get mad now when you say, hey, I'll be praying for you. Thoughts and prayers, they, they take that as offensive now. Oh, that's all you got? You know, kind of a thing. Like that's, you know, but, but in, in God's upside down kingdom, it's the greatest thing we can do for someone. So we see this in this passage. When the kingdom of darkness attacks God's people, they respond with a very effective weapon of prayer. Prayer can seem passive, but it's really the Christian's best offensive because it demonstrates full reliance upon God and his ability and no reliance upon you and your ability. That's a good place to be. The church's prayers for Peter accomplished more than anything else they could have done. I think Piper one time talked about prayers as a wartime walkie-talkie, and I like that picture. I mean, they were just, they were, you know, they were behind enemy lines in a bunker, didn't know what to do, so they call in an airstrike, because what else are they going to do, right? Imagine what would have happened if they would have taken matters into their own hands and formed like a some kind of rescue team to go and free Peter. I mean, that would have been a bad day for them, most likely, but instead they prayed and see what happens. I love Psalm 27. It says, some trust in chariots. And summon horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. If you want to know what you're really trusting in, your prayer life is a really good indicator. If that's the last place you go, then you're not really relying upon God. And, and while this passage makes it clear that Peter's miraculous deliverance was the result of the church interceding for him, did you notice how surprised they were when God actually answered their prayer? <laughs> I mean, it's it, it actually kind of, okay, we're asking for this, Lord. And when he comes to the door, they're like, no way. And I'm encouraged by that somehow because I'm, I, uh, I'm not known for my, you know, I'm not like George Mueller. I don't have, like, people aren't going to write books about my great faith. Um, so often it's taught that the effectiveness of our prayers hinges upon the amount of faith we have. But it doesn't appear to be the case here. Uh, I know that the... The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. The Bible tells that. We do need to pray with faith. And I wish that I prayed with faith more often, but I also realize that God sometimes just delights in blowing our minds. And we see that here on a weekly basis when we come out and we pray for each other and we see the way he answers and the way that he comes through for us. And, and I love that about the sharing time we do here. It's really just an opportunity to, to set a stage where God can just perform his amazing, powerful, wonderful works for us in front of us. And he gets all the credit and glory for that. The bottom line is this, though, that a praying church is an effective church. I love the story of Charles Spurgeon's church. Um, people would often visit the Metro Metropolitan Tabernacle where he preached because they wanted to, to find out what the special sauce was. It's like, what's going on here? How is this working? You know, they would come to visit. And there's a story of five college students that visited London one Sunday to hear Charles Spurgeon preach at the Met Metropolitan Tabernacle. And when they arrived early, they were met by a kind gentleman who offered to give them a tour. And at one point he asked them, uh, would you like to see the furnace room in the basement? You know, woo, right? It was a hot July day and the students were not interested, but not wanting to appear rude, they consented. The guide quietly opened the door and there in the basement of the Metropolitan Tabernacle, there were several hundred people fervently praying for the service that was about to begin. It was then that their guide introduced himself. 
He was none other than Charles Spurgeon himself. And he wanted these college students to understand that prayer was the power source of his ministry. Not him. Not his great sermons or ability. That's what he pointed to. People praying for this church. He, he, he called it the power plant or the engine room of the church. I like that. Um, we had a, a small group that would meet in the cry room uh, for quite a while that would pray before services. And, and Trisha Crazy, and I don't think she's here today. She probably wouldn't want me to call her out if she was, but she wants to get that started again. She asked, hey, would it be okay? I love that. It's like, yes, please. So there's going to be a group that meets there on Sunday mornings. I don't know what time they're going to start. I would guess around nine to pray for this church, to pray for the ministry that goes on here. Um, and and I, I would, you know, anybody, that room holds seven or eight comfortably. It would be really cool if we had to move the engine room to the big room upstairs and, and just to see that happen because your prayers matter. I, uh, I want to say thank you for all of you that faithfully pray for us. Uh, we need it as pastors. Our families need it. Uh, the other people in this church need it. I love to see somebody gather around, you know, somebody that's going through a hard time and just praying for them. It's, it's the greatest thing we can do for each other sometimes. So um, the bottom line is that our efforts are never going to make this work. It's only God who is able. So the last one that we see in this is proliferation. And I know that's a five-syllable word, and we try not to use those too often because we're doorknobs. I haven't been called that in a while. Not really. I love you guys. It's just, uh, it's really advanced. The advance of the gospel is what we're talking about here. But it started with P. And how often can you get all four of your points to start with the same letter? That's, yeah. Herod had every intention of ridding Jerusalem of the Christian church once and for all. And his plan was that by martyring James and Peter, that it would just go away. But God had a slightly different plan. And the really amazing thing about what happened to James and what happened to Peter is both outcomes served to advance the gospel. You see that? James's death fueled their fire and Peter's rescue increased their faith. When I hear about a Christian who died for their faith, it, it does something powerful inside of me. I can't explain it, but it motivates me like, like nothing else. I just, you know, want to hear that, that somebody would, would, Die for their faith does something. God's sovereign plan here is, is, is something that can't be stopped, even by the most powerful of men. And the result of Herod's attempt to squash the church was actually exactly the opposite of what he'd hoped for. It says that the word of God increased and multiplied. In fact, chapter 13 starts out with the church embarking on its first great missionary journey. Uh, coincidence? No, not even a little. So, at the beginning of this chapter, we have James martyred, Peter arrested and facing certain death, Herod basking in the glory of his attack against God's church, and things look pretty bleak. But by the end of this chapter, we have James at home in the presence of the Lord, Peter miraculously freed to continue preaching the gospel, the church in awe of a God who cannot be stopped Herod eaten by worms and the gospel moving through the land like an avalanche barreling down a mountainside. I mean, who is like our God? Remember that when th things look bleak, chapter's not finished yet. God will triumph. There's no question about that. And as Christians, we always have reason to hope 
and not despair because in Christ we are already victorious. Jesus is alive. He's triumphed over sin and death. His kingdom will come, and I can't wait for it. I love that I'm, I'm on a hymn kick today, I guess, but I love the, the, the guy that wrote the, the hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. Um, he lost everything. He lost his family. He lost his wife and kids. And he went back to the place where, where they had died in, in, the, in the ocean. And the captain told him this was about the spot where it happened. And he wrote that hymn, It Is Well With My Soul, which is mind-boggling. But he writes these words, Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. It is well with my soul. Father, thank you so much for your incredible power. We're in awe of who you are. We're in awe of your plan of salvation. And we thank you that, that it included us. We thank you that Jesus died for sinners and that by trusting in, in his death and his burial and his resurrection, it, when we repent and we turn to that and believe, Lord, you will save us. We pray, Lord, that if there's anybody here that has not yet confessed that Jesus is Lord, that today would be the day that they would just humbly bow in their heart right now and acknowledge who you are and what you've done and how desperately they need you. And I thank you, Father, again, um, for the way that you work. Uh, we're in awe of who you are. We thank you um, that your glory is like none other and, and that we get just glimpses of it from time to time. Have your way with this church. Have your way with the future of what we do. We thank you for the opportunity you're giving us even now to go out and expand and to take more ground for the kingdom, hopefully. We pray, Lord, that it would be you that we rely upon fully and that your church would be praying um, for you to work powerfully, Lord, because we recognize that we are not able, but you are the God who is able. So thank you so much for this day and this time now in Jesus' name. Amen.